Welcome to The Political Nomad. I'm your host, Josh Gillespie. Before I launched my first show, I was talking with a number of people who I wanted to have on the show, as well as getting their suggestions for potential guests. Out of those conversations came one of my previous guests, Corey Hall. One of the others was J.B. Aldo He was a big-time suggestion. Now, I'm friends with J.B. on Facebook, and we hung around many of the same political convention and online social circles, but tonight is the first time that I'm getting a chance to sit down and talk with him. J.B. is originally from the Philippines and moved to the United States when he was 21. His early political leanings were shaped by the likes of the National Review, Rush Limbaugh, and the Heritage Foundation. However, more recently, he's taken a more pragmatic approach to politics after seeing the GOP squander its chances to achieve political successes when they've controlled all or most branches of government. Now, that doesn't mean he switched parties or gone independent. There is so much more to J.B.'s story, and he's here to tell it. Please welcome J.B. Aroyano. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I'm doing great. I am so happy that I finally get a chance to talk to you. And I, I, we've been friends on Facebook for, gosh, years. We've interacted a few times there, but, uh, and, and I know that we've talked, you know, at CPACs, at other conventions, but, you know, it's, it's never been like just, you know, sitting down and talking and, 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 and finding out about each other. So I'm happy that we get this chance. I'm thrilled that your name kept on coming up. Uh, when I was talking, when I was asking about potential guests for this show, um, so I, I've given a little bit into who you are. Now, tell my audience if you don't mind, because some of them may know you. Because I mean, I'm going to tweet this out. I'm, I'm going to promote this, and a lot of the people that we know, they're going to see this, and they're going to be like, "Oh, I know JV," but there may be some people who don't. So. You know, give a little bit more insight into into who you are, what you know, what got you into politics, and what shaped and formed you that way. Well, um, first of all, I didn't grow up here, right? So I I moved to the United States three days before my twenty first birthday. And oh wow! Just, yeah, yeah, and 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 my um, my visa actually would have expired if it. If I if I was out of country before then, so I I made it in the nick of time. Um, I was straight out of college, just graduated like a couple of weeks before because the school year is different over there. And then you know I uh, flew out over here, um, moved in with my family because that's what we needed to do when you're that's what you need to do when you're you're a new immigrant, you know, and yeah. um, and. Basically, I just paid attention to a lot of current events, and what got me really into politics was, oh, believe it or not, it was nine eleven. You know, so mm-hmm. so I didn't, I <clears throat> I didn't own a computer, and I didn't have internet access at my place. You know, with my mom at the time, and nine eleven happened, and you know, like that 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 first two weeks. Of no flights, you could you know you you could hear there are no jets flying overhead. I was I was living in an apartment complex where you know like the jets would be flying overhead all the time, and mm-hmm. like you could hear the birds and the crickets, and there were no flights. But long well, story short, around December, my mom got me a computer, got ourselves a cable internet connection, and discovered blogging, 
discovered discourse. Um, and that's where we are. Uh, it's long, long, long journey uh, from where I was politically at first to where I am. And everyone has a political conversion story in either direction. Um, uh-huh. But really part of it was <laughs> I had no idea that there was this thing called conservatism when I was growing up back home. It was not a thing. Um, it's really hard to explain. Uh, you, you know, I, I grew up lower middle class in the Philippines and you know, my mom came here in 96. So for about five or approximately six years, actually, like more like 95, uh, for, for a good amount of time, I was with family and I was studying college and my final year of high school and there really was no time for politics. When you're 17, 18, you know, you really don't care. Yeah. You know, like, like I had, my, some of my school days were seven in the morning to seven at night. Um, oh my God. Oh yeah, like I had a 32 credit, I had a 32 credit semester. Um, as a high school student? No, no, a college. At, whoa, even as a college student, that's insane, a 32 yeah. credit semester? Yeah, so the second semester of third year, so let's let's get into this for just, a, like, you know, let, we'll, we'll just... Yeah, ex- explain the mechanics <laughs> of a 32 credit semester. Okay, I... oh man. Um, so so when, when you go to college back home, you apply for a degree program, and you don't apply to... Um, you know, you don't just apply to be a student at this school, and then you can choose your electives. Oh no, no. Yeah. So, so, oh. so the university I went to, uh, you, you take their admission test, and you declare what academic program you want you want to get into, and you what degree you want to get when you graduate. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, you will be handed a curriculum. You will be handed classes for every semester, and there are no ifs, no buts about it. There's no such things as electives. You can drop out of a class, you can and and take it up in the summer. But almost every class is a prerequisite for the next semester, which means that if you drop out a class in the beginning of the year, you're going to set yourself back a year. Um, yeah, it's 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 terrible, but it's also very rigorous. You know, I went to. Um, a, well, man, like 400-year-old university. It's the University of Santo Tomas. It was one of the first universities established in the Philippines. It is wow. The, yep, and it's got a very long name, actually, long, long, long list of titles. It is called the Royal and Pontifical uh, Catholic University of the Philippines, University of Santo Tomas. And I went there wow. to be. <laughs> I went there to be a uh, for pre-med. I was in the biology program which was the premier pre-med um, degree that you would get if you wanted to go to med school, which, mm-hmm. I thought I went, which, which I thought I wanted to do considering I was young. When I was young, I was sickly. I was in the hospital almost every year, infectious disease, tropical disease, name it, right? So, wow. so kind of been like, oh yeah, I wanna heal people, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, but basically, 32 credits, uh, in the third year of your se- second semester of your third year, uh, every day from Monday to Friday, you have five lectures from seven in the morning to noon. You break for an hour and you have two lab classes, three hours each from one to four oh. and then four to seven. Wow. And they pack 
the most difficult classes in the same semester. Talking organic chemistry, you're talking, um, uh, you're talking comparative anatomy uh, of mammals, which means that we're dissecting cats, uh, we're dissecting okay. pigeons, you know, uh, and a shark, mm -hmm. like a little, a little dogfish. Um, oh, okay, yeah. But we, and we had to carry those cat bags back home. Ah. Oh. oh yeah, it's an embalmed oh. cat. And you start from it all furry, right? And you go all the way down to the bones and it takes you a semester. And, oh, wow. and students from my university, during the time of the second, second semester of that year, every year you'll see the students from my university carrying cat bags, as they're called. Mm -hmm. And they're notorious. Wow. Well, we were notorious in the city that we were in. Because the different, because it's like, Oh, it's like University Row. There's like five or six um, campuses, different universities in the same like ten block radius in the city, right? Okay. And and, yeah. the, and and the students have their cat bags from different schools. Like they all, uh, <laughs> they they all. <laughs> this sounds so funny. It is. It is. It is. But yeah. So um, so so you have let's see five lectures Monday, Wednesday, Friday five lectures um, Tuesday, Thursday. So that's, um, you know, I think that's 10 credits. And then the labs, um, plus plus I also have ROTC. Mm -hmm. um, like every student has oh, ROTC. Oh, you are in ROTC too? Yeah, yeah, like, yes. Dang. Yes. 32 hours and ROTC? No, that, that includes, that includes, that includes, uh, that oh, includes okay. yeah, but still, but still. It, it, still. It, it's extremely rigorous, you know, like, so every time I hear of people having, like, I'm only having four classes this year, I'm like, oh, okay, well, good on you. Uh, <laughs> but oh, man. a very, very busy college schedule means that I really don't get to pay too much attention to current events, Yeah, which is a very, very funny thing. The, the difference is this. In... At the State University, University of the Philippines, there's uh, the, the main campus. Uh, you, nobody nobody pays tuition there, right? Like, so if you're admitted to the University of the Philippines, all you have to pay for is your um, room and board if you're dorming it, you know, or uh -huh. uh, you know your expenses, your books. But tuition is covered, um, as, with it being State University, and uh -huh. the. The number one reputation of students at UP, University of the Philippines, was that they were more busy about being activists than they were being mm. good students. So it's 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 where all the communists are. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 the thing is, you know, communism is um, banned in the Philippines. It is anathema. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also um, uh, domestic insurgency is also anathema, right? So we do have freedom of speech over there, but it, it has certain regulations that we don't have over here. You know, we like you'll see plenty of people who agitate for for violence against the government. You have people carrying guns around Virginia, not happening in the Philippines. Dude. It's not it, it, it it's it's not highly regulated, but. We had a popular popular overthrow in 1986, a nonviolent one, and another one in 2000. 
and our country is not geared for civil war. Uh -huh. We're a very forgiving people. Um, you know, somebody, somebody who tried to overthrow the government in 1991 later on became a senator, and he still is a senator. Wow. Yes, yes. That, let's just say that's something that also wouldn't happen here. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but, but yes, so um, my attention to politics started here. Mm -hmm. um, no concept of political theory. I was a little bit more on the leftist side, you know. American popular media, as it filters around the world, gears towards pro-Democrat ideas. You know, one of the most famous movies that came out in my college years was The American President. Remember that one? I vaguely... You know, here's the thing, is that I grew up really into politics. Mm. Like, I, my, I actually have direct lineage to a U.S. president. Um, now, not the greatest U.S. president. Far from it, actually. He's kind of bottom tier. But still, it's in the blood, you know? Um, but outside of, you know, like really getting into the West Wing, you know, in the early 2000s, I really didn't watch, like, even a lot of political shows or, or, or movies, even things that were fun or, like, Dave or uh, just other political drama type stuff. I actually didn't get into that until I was actually working in D.C., even though I had always, like, D.C. was my dream, um, believe it or not. Uh. It was for a long time, actually. It's, uh, but, yeah, I, I was never actually, like, really into the, the media projection of politics, if that makes sense. I understand. Um, oh, man, good old D.C., you know, the <laughs> <laughs> well, now, so, so just to kind of put it in perspective, like so, when when did you move to? You moved in two thousand one, but like, how close to nine eleven did you move to the states? So I moved here in June of two thousand one, and three months later, the World Trade Center is crumbling down. You know, yep. on, on live TV. I, I moved to DC. In August of 2001, like August 27th, two weeks, a little more than two weeks before 9-11. So, I, saw, I saw the second plane hit on live TV. That was, it yeah. was terrible. My mom and I were like, whoa, what is happening? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of spaced out for a little bit. You should have, I mean, I, I have, it, it's burned into my brain, my recollection of that day, because I was on the hill. Uh, I was working in the Rayburn, Rayburn House Office Building, um, working for the Government Reform Committee. Uh, yeah, Government Reform Committee. Um, and you know, I'll, I'll I'll leave the names out to 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 save the innocent, I guess. But the things that I heard, because I saw it happening on live TV too, just. I mean, people suggesting who it was, what was going on, the screams in the hallway. It, it was, it was the most insane thing that I've ever, and most surreal thing that I've ever experienced. 
in in my life, even to this point, you know, we're what we're going we're in what week five of a pandemic in the United States, week six. How many? Day, I don't know. We've lost count at this point. I've lost count. And, yeah, but that day and and that morning is the most you know, surreal thing that I think that I've that I've ever experienced in my life. When I saw that happen. You know, it took me a while to process it. And if you want to understand where an immigrant myself would be coming from right now, you know, it's very rare for me to actually say, um, to actually say this on the record. Uh, mm -hmm. You won't see it written. I, it's not something that I like to write because it is not a sentiment that, if written, can be taken well with yeah. the best of motives, right? So I will say this on the record here, that when you were, when you just turned 21, you didn't know any better, and you come from a country where there is a history of colonization across multiple, you know, across multiple, um, you know, centuries. Yeah. The, my first reaction, not my first reaction, sorry, I have to apologize. Um, one of my subsequent reactions to 9-11 was this was forthcoming I'll make this very clear I'm not going to say that we deserved it because no one did mm -hmm. nobody yeah. did nobody deserved that to happen no country deserves for that to happen but it was coming it was an eventuality that unfortunately you know, with, with the USS Cole bombing, we, with a lot of the sins of our fathers, um, when we tried to foment a popular coup d'etat in Iraq, and, and we watched them get slaughtered by Saddam Hussein. Mm -hmm. A lot of those things in the past went ahead. And I'm not saying we, we at the time, our people, you know, deserved it. That was not mm -hmm. the sentiment. But it happened, and it happened because of things that were slowly coming in from a long time ago. And, I, I think I understand what you're saying there. Yes, I mean, and this is why I can't I mean, write this stuff because, like, like there is no way that you can write this without being yeah. labeled a monster. I no, can at uh, well, least deliver it. People have to understand, and, and that's what they're not going to understand when they see it written. But oh, maybe they might if they if they know the the author behind it and and, and know the the past. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the Philippines, we we took it over in a war. You know, it was it was part of American expansion. In the late 1800s, almost nine, almost 1900s, and it was you know just as the British Empire before it had expanded all over the world. Just recently watched a video, kind of an alternate history video on if uh, England hadn't taken over India for a long time and how that would have played out. Um, and, and so it's like. You, I know what you're saying, and it, it, not in a, a deserved fashion, but that at some point, an uprising to a degree, when you look at, at what America has done in other countries, from our involvement in Iran in the 50s, 
to our involvement in Iraq in the 80s, to our involvement in Central America, all up and down Central America in the 80s. Yes. I mean, and, and, and Republicans, and probably even some Democrats will bristle at this because they're like, no, 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 we, this, you know, we all did this for the right reasons. And I'm like, no, actually we didn't. We did it for our own interests, but what we messed up in those places is... We're still paying the price for those mistakes. Look at Cuba. Yeah, Cuba. You can you can still look at Afghanistan. I mean, the, the the involvement that we had in Afghanistan in the '80s directly led to the creation of Osama bin Laden. But I mean, yeah. So America, it's a it's a great country, but we have made more than our fair share of missteps. We have, and one of the things that. I always want to think about with policy, whether whether it's foreign or domestic, is that the bill always comes due. You know, the, the people who make the policies aren't the ones who pay for it when they happen. You know, and, and, and I think that, you know, as we as we drift towards current events and as we drift towards my what I call pragmatic politics, right, or, or political pragmatism or pragmatic conservatism, however you want to label it. Yeah. I want to believe that we have to understand that the bill comes due. Mm-hmm. And whether it's $4 trillion for this pandemic, you know, the memes are out there, you know, money printer goes the bill's going to come due, and the only way we could probably stave this off, for example, is to, oh boy, um, basically bring in a lot of production into our country, be a net exporter again, right? Be, produce the products that the world will want from us, with prices that we can sustain ourselves with and provide great goods and services across the world. and. Increasing that GDP will help us at least slowly pay off that debt. Because yeah. I might not have grandkids, but my my sister will have grandkids. She has five children. And those uh-huh. five children are going to have grandchildren. And they are going to pay for the bill on this pandemic when they become adults. Yeah. Uh, through devalued currency, through... Um, a lot of things, a lot of things, right? And, and and so what I want us to remember as we talk tonight is that pragmatism isn't just about what's proximate. It's not just about what's here and now and how to fix that. It, it, it I, I believe in a long view of government. I believe that, you know, the precedents that we elect have to set things up in a way that will survive their terms. And I think that when it comes to that, Republicans tend to moderate towards the center for long-term legacy. And as you can see, and I've only been around here for 20 years, and there's only been one Democratic president under, you know, like I've lived through, and it's Barack Obama. But, but... What Obama did with a lot of his policy was to 
he overthought legacy and didn't think about the proximate to the point that the reaction to it is erasure. You know, like so. So you had the Tea Party in 2010. You had the Republicans won both house, you know, both chambers of Congress in uh, what was it, 2012? Twenty eighteen. Let's see, Republicans. Yeah, yeah. Republicans uh, under Obama, Republicans. Twenty fourteen. They, yeah, they they took it. They took the House back. I want to say in twenty fourteen. I want to say they did in twenty ten. They got the House in twenty ten, but then Harry Reid they lost it in twenty twelve. Um, gained it back, and I think, you know, I. Which is terrible because this was this was the last time I was like really involved was this time and I'm having a hard time remembering. But I'll tell you why uh, it's hard to remember, Josh, and I'll tell you why. Because those were lost years. Like we don't remember squat from it. Because there's nothing that happened. All you had and, and I will say this, all we had was obstruction against Obama's most radical proposals. And yet for the ones where we could um, have fought a little bit harder, we rolled for it. You know, mm-hmm. and and I think the biggest the biggest loss of faith in institutions uh, in recent memory, like before before all of this, before we got Trump, is Scott Brown. Oh yeah, the the first time around fifty one. Remember, I I I believe yeah, yeah like Mister fifty one, or or yeah. what number was he? But but he was he was hammering on a number. Because he wanted to be that final obstructive vote. And what did they do? They went through reconciliation. And Scott Brown lost his lost his seat because the people of Massachusetts understood that what he was hired for was no longer relevant. And mm-hmm. we, and, and Scott Brown gave us Elizabeth Martin. But yeah. you know, but reconciliation, that, that process that went around and instead of um, so instead of law as a matter of law, they treated it as a matter of money, which was mm-hmm. an available method, right? And and but people were disgusted by it. Yeah, people were disgusted but, but, by it. But before you go further in this, and I like yeah. where you're going, I want to I want to discuss this this even further. But I, I want to take a step back a bit. Um, yeah, and let's talk to me a bit about. How you got introduced to like the National Review and Rush Limbaugh? Because my recollection of of post nine eleven events in this country, uh, well, it was you know we were we were like together for the first time in a long time. You know, uh, George W. Bush's approval rating score you know went through the roof. Um. And there was there was this feeling of unity. However, there was this kind of underlying um, distrust of, of of people not from this country. Okay. Um, yeah. And and I mean specifically people from the Middle East. And I mean, not that I condone it, but I get it. I don't condone it though, right. but I get it. Right. Um, especially in light of of nine eleven, but I guess it's like when when you come here as as an immigrant, um, 
then 9-11 happens, and then you see people's reaction to people who aren't from this country. But yet you're still drawn in by, you know, by, and I'm trying to put this gently, uh, because in, in 2001 and 2002, I probably would have put myself into the National Review, Rush Limbaugh listening, you know, heritage crowd, but in you know when you look at it in 2020 terms 2019 2020 terms people kind of look at those people as or those groups as hard writers um i wouldn't call them racist but some people would call them racist i think it's it's crazy to call it's it's crazy to call them racist they're but you know it's, it's so i mean it's it's you know it's like so yeah i guess the question is yeah in light of where America was and kind of this underlying foment against immigrants, what drew you to, you know, conservatism? Or okay, okay, this is fun. This is this is actually fun. And one of okay, so how did I get into this? Okay, so uh, one of the things that I'll also will warn you about is that I really, really. Digress. I I I have to okay. tell you about That's okay. I, I digress <laughs> because I digress because of stories. And and if anybody, if anyone you know knows me better than you do, um, they will tell you that there's always a story. Uh, there's always a story. And and that's what the show is about, JB. Oh, is, yeah. It's 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 the story. That's and that's uh, you know I kind of reiterate this every once in a while on the show is that. The purpose of this is to explore people's stories because we don't know what the stories are behind people's political journeys. Everyone has a different political journey, and there's a reason that they've become the way that they've become. Now, some people have a very straight-line journey. They've always been a Republican or they've always been a Democrat, regardless of who is in the president or how the party has moved. They're always going to be a part of that party. And there are people who, and they were raised that way. But then there are people who have had a very roller coaster. They've switched parties. They've been involved in campaigns. They've done this. They've done that. They've been, they've been in it. They've been out of it. You know, that that's. I mean, I don't. Cons- I mean, I was, I, I I was born practically a Republican. You know, I was raised in a very conservative family, um, and it's my path has has you know diverged from them within the last 10 to 15 years but that but that doesn't mean that I, I don't consider myself I don't consider myself a Republican anymore but it's not that I don't hold conservative still have some conservative values okay. you know I'm, I'm very much pro-life right. but you know in some other issues whereas I, I and, and my, my journey has been very much informed by my faith that I look at it and, and I see some issues that my faith tells me to love that person. Scripture tells me to love that person regardless of who they are, what they are, what they claim to be. Sure. I I am to love that person and that can put me at odds with some people. Yeah. But you know, here I am. I probably wouldn't have said that when I was in college, but here I am now, so That's good. Well, how did I get into National Review and Rush Limbaugh and all that, right? So, good news. 
Um, so I, when I first moved over here, uh, you know, we had an apartment, two bedroom. I had my own, you know, and my mom, and I had a lot of spare time. I had a lot of spare time, and I, I'm a very friendly guy. Like I am very uh-huh. sociable. Ask anybody, you know. I like I, I will socialize. I will get inside your head. I will ask you things and talk to you and listen to you. And I became friends with um, a guy named John, and he he would smoke cigarettes out on his balcony. And on weekends, we would have beer and we would watch Iron Chef. And that was a great show. Oh yeah, back in two thousand one, dude, like Iron Chef was, it was something. And you yeah. would go through that, and then you know, bit by bit conversation would drift towards politics. Now, understand, that post 9-11, as I said, we were talking about an event, like I was looking at the event as an eventuality, right? Like something mm-hmm. forthcoming. Yeah. The no value judgment, obviously, which I hope doesn't make me a monster. But there is a root to that idea. You know, there's, there, there, there's, there, there's an undercurrent to that. How did I come to that, right? Because there is resentment towards U.S. policy and in global foreign policy, uh, uh-huh. because the United States has messed up a lot of countries. States has messed up a lot of countries trying to watch out for its own interests, and despite me not being um, a communist, there is. A thread of class warfare. I, I I didn't grow up rich, you know. I was I I, I didn't I, I I wasn't poor. I was lower middle class, and I got my computer in December. I started hanging out with my friend John in February or March. And the funny thing is, like, you have that three month period where oh, I'm online and I'm reading these things. And blogs were just starting out, and. No, a lot of it was leftist that I didn't even know. You know, like I, I didn't even know what these labels meant. Honestly, hmm. I really didn't because again, I wasn't particularly attuned to yeah, you know that stuff. So a lot of it, like oh, yeah, but a lot of it was like dribble, like eat the rich, you know, oh, well, you know, rich people steal from everybody else and all that stuff. Yeah, and through very gradual conversation and weekly beer and cigarette hangouts and Iron Chef, they start bouncing ideas off each other and and guess what? Well, he starts ask, questioning my priors. He has me questioning my priors. It's like, well, what did this rich person do to steal from you that made him rich? And I'm like, yeah, oh, I don't know. Right? Maybe they're uh-huh. Maybe they engage in cronyism, which you know keeps me down. Um, you know, so so there was a lot of questioning of priors, and this was not a very fast. This was not a very quick conversion, right? And this took yeah. me approximately about a year and a half, maybe two years of you know reading the corner and National Review, watching, you know, reading the likes of like uh, of. Um, you know, Rich Lowry and and and, and yeah. Jonah Goldberg engage in open debate through blog posts, right? Because uh-huh. we didn't have streaming video 
at the time. Like blogging heads didn't start until about oh four or oh six, and even then, you know, camera quality was low, streaming um, uh, streaming speeds were low, which means that your uh, video quality was not good. And and so it was a lot of open debate between writers, and I like like people bouncing ideas off of each other. And there was that beautiful period from 02 to about 06, where there were very few moral panics. There were a few, but they were rare. They were very rare. Um, people who were writing at the time, who were online at the time, will remember the huge, and this is the word that they would use, kerfuffle, which I don't like. It sounds weird. It was a huge, acrimonious debate. Um, over the New York City public schools providing breakfast uh -huh. to students. And by then, I was fairly in the conservative camp. And, and I'm just thinking to myself, you know, oh, well, you know, that's school funding, that's money that's taken out of taxpayers. And they're using it to provide breakfast to students. Where are their parents? Why are they not feeding their children? It was extremely heartless. Uh -huh. And the other, and, and, and I think that this was when, finally, finally, you kind of start to realize that ideological rigidity It's going to cause you a lot of issues um, because it's going to put you into a position that is morally unsupportable. Uh -huh. And it's the same thing sometimes when people say that, well, well, you know, like, I support Trump on this or I don't support Trump on that. And God, like, like I'm, I'm really tired of everything being about Trump. But, you know, the same deal with Obama. Um, but basically, I saw a lot of people back then who opposed the idea of New York City taxpayer-funded public schools giving breakfast to the kids. Yeah. And their only argument was, well, the parents were irresponsible. Uh, do you even know how you sound? Yeah, you know, and that I, killed I, me. And at the time, I was on the unsympathetic camp. And it's yeah, not about no, I was too. And it's not I about simping for people. It, it really wasn't even trying to like look good for other people or or oh well, rah rah. I'm like I'm living true to my values. It's just the lack of humanity that came with that idea, with that reaction, really jarred me. Right, because the people who were debating this was very tiny. Like, dude, like the blogosphere was like two thousand blogs back then, and yeah. and and the circle of people this thing involved involved everybody, it involved everybody. If you think the Twitter fights are bad, like, dude, this was this was worse, uh -huh. and 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 that's when you that that was like the first really first big moral panic. In, in online discourse that I witnessed mm -hmm. that fight over you know breakfasts and and it, people were attacking each other's motives man like and and we see that all the time now right yeah it's it's so commonplace that we don't even care 
But yeah. but 160 years ago, duels were fought for less. Um, you, you know, people challenged each other to duels for 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 way smaller um, attacks on their honor, and maybe it was performative, maybe it was for everybody else who was watching, but it was ugly. It, it was ugly, and and another, and, and people like, kind of went bananas, man. Like some some people started stalking each other, trying to find out where they lived, and trying to start you know spreading rumors, and it gave me pause. And so between 06 and about 2010, 2009 actually, I was not online that much. Mm -hmm. I. I had a different life by then. I had different work. I wasn't. Smartphones were not a thing, you know. Oh six, they were not a big deal. Um, I could stay away from the internet back then. No social media, so I just stuck with whatever I needed. I mean, I didn't sign up for Twitter until twenty ten. So Twitter was around for about two years before then. I didn't care. Uh -huh. um, but it was great um, because then. I could just read and honestly listen to Rush and I could pick out the things that I don't like when he would say stuff and it would never be about it would never be about what the media would tell me I should be mad at. And yeah. that's and, 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 and I think that's the thing when I say that I want to take pride in the idea that I still had an independent thought in my head. Is uh -huh. that I try not to care about something deeply if somebody else tells me to do something. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's kind of like where we're at. But but yeah, so I drifted towards conservatism through conversation. Huh. Mm hmm And nobody huh. drilled this idea in my head. It's just just me like questioning my priors, having somebody to talk to. Mm -hmm. With no judgment, with no moral pronouncements, and here we are. That's that's honestly how it's supposed to be. I, you know, you know. Any, I mean, but it's not that way anymore. You know, people are are, are so inundated with so much information from so many sides, so many angles that. It's it's hard to come at anything objectively anymore, and politics seems to have become so polarizing. And I, I remember, I, I, I feel like I want to remember a time when it wasn't. But when I was coming of age in the nineties, you know, and Bill Clinton was president. I mean, I look back on that now, and that just seems like such a peaceful time. But it was, but it was 1993 that you know Bill Clinton was trying to push nationalized health care. That got Republicans in control of the House and the Senate for the first time in 48 years, mm -hmm. something like that, yeah. uh, in 1994. And all of a sudden, it's like there was this newfound voice within this wellspring of conservatism in the United States. Now, not just in the White House, because, I mean, Republicans have been able to win the White House. They've been able to win the House a few times. But, you know, it was like now they had 
Now they had control. And they, you know, I remember in 1995 when Rush Limbaugh was, he was on fire. I remember my dad listening to him. I remember, I remember going to a trip. Uh, my dad had a work trip in D.C. And we went as a family um, to, to D.C. with him just so we could kind of take in the culture and, and everything else. And I remember back in the 90s, like Rush Limbaugh was so popular that they had these places called Rush Rooms. And so basically it was a place where you could, it was a restaurant you could go to, everyone would be quiet. And they'd just be sitting there eating. Rush Limbaugh would be pumped over the speakers. And this was, this was 90s DC. Um, and, and, and if you, I mean, if you know the history of DC, just, I mean, it, to think of that, especially after the 80s, is kind of wild. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, that, that was, that was it, it was like a newfound voice for conservatism in the United States because it came from more people, it seemed, because Republicans, like there were more Republicans in D.C. now. So because of the House and, and Senate victories. And it's like they were going to take it to Bill Clinton because he beat Bush in, in 1992 and we we're going to make life miserable. And now, that's the way I can look at it now. Then, I was just like, yeah, we're in power, baby. We're going to take it to the president. And then 1996 happened. That was the first year I could vote. And Bob Dole ran. And I was like, wow, the first guy I get to vote for you know, yeah, he's a war hero, but man, he looks like he's on his last legs. <laughs> I'm like, this is the best we got. Um, but I proudly went into the voting booth at uh, Lantern Road Elementary School. I remember exactly where. And cast that vote for Bob Dole. And obviously didn't win, but we, you know, maintained control. You know, 98, you have impeachment. And it's just like, that just swung the door so wide open to political acrimony that because I mean if you look at the way that the Democrats handled the impeachment of Donald Trump it's the same way the Republicans handled the impeachment of Bill Clinton almost identical almost identical and then then the 2000 election hanging chads the Supreme Court and it was just yeah, it was all downhill from there. Do we, you, had that, we had that brief yeah. respite after 9-11, but it's just been all downhill from there. Do you remember um, Selected Not Elected? Wasn't that... Mm -hmm. Oh, my word. That Are was you, a thing. I completely forgot about that. Until you that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Selected, Which is, again, in my mind, com complete BS. Because, I mean, regardless of what people want to believe, the outcome played out the way it was supposed to. I mean, the court had to do what it had to do, and and people will be like, "Oh, it was a conservative court." Blah blah blah. Yeah, I remember. You're never going to be happy with the outcome unless you know, I, I remember just... Justice Scalia in an interview being asked about Bush versus Gore. and his only statement was, "It was the right decision." Mm -hmm. I believe it was the correct decision. And it was. They had to be correct. But there's, if you want, I'll give you a little bit of my own perspective on acrimony. Mm -hmm. 
and and I would love to hear it actually. Oh, okay, so before social media was big, um, politics was really acrimonious, even then, because people were already. I believe the word they use now is simping, although I'm very familiar, more prefer, you know, um, vamping or white knighting. Um, everybody, there was the political division even before I was born based on standing up for a certain constituency that doesn't have a voice in the other party. Mm-hmm. So. If you want yeah. to talk about popular media, for example, Republicans in popular media have been always portrayed as racist. It's mm-hmm. always the southern white guy, or it's always the rich person from like the Midwest with who doesn't like people like them. That's that's the way they were dis- they were popularized in, in culture, and that's because of the leftist control of Hollywood. But you know what? I mean, that's kind of where it is right now it's been that way for a while but a lot of it is this idea for example that that for example Christians can only be Republican uh-huh. right um, or that you know like post 9-11 because we had a Republican leadership and because we knew that the attackers were jihadists, the Democrats swooped in and basically said, oh, we, we want all the Muslims to be basically supporting us because, look, the Republicans are going after you. So, so the polarization isn't about party, not, at least not, not from where I think. I think the polarization is happening because constituent groups, because panderers in politics of both parties have carved out constituent groups and basically produced the distrust of the opposing party. Yes. Yes. This is the most com- this is most commonly the most common example that we have is the democratic lock on African American votes. Uh, yes, I would agree with that, but as you alluded to earlier, you could say the same for Evangelical Christians and Republicans. At absolutely, this point. absolutely. Um, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. Exactly I mean, the same honestly, thing. I look at 2016, and I mean, Donald Trump needed the evangelical vote to win in 2016. Sure. And he, I mean, making Mike Pence his choice as vice president was was honestly a brilliant move on his part, even though it was panned by so many people. It was a brilliant move on his part because it shored up a base, but. To me, it was also one of the most pandering moves that he could have made because there is nothing about Donald Trump, absolutely nothing about Donald Trump that should appeal to someone who considers themselves an evangelical Christian. Ah, I would love to. Yeah, okay, so you got some points on that. I would like. I'm Catholic. I'm not evangelical. I, I don't know because. This is from somebody, this is from my friend who who did kind of like have to explain, a different friend who had to explain that Christianity, especially in evangelical circles, is a cultural thing in the United States. It is. Right? It's part of your cultural no, it is. identity. Absolutely. Right? Mm-hmm. So 
like Catholics, like we're Catholic, the area Catholics. Every Catholic that you know is a bad Catholic. And no Catholic who, I, I'll tell you this much, any <laughs> Catholic who claims to be a good Catholic is a horrible Catholic. Well, I mean, what, what the, the joke Catholic. is to be a Catholic. To be a Catholic means you have means you like have a guilty conscience one hundred percent of the time. Oh gosh, I can't even get into that tonight, <laughs> man. Like I could talk four hours simply about Catholicism and main misconceptions about it. But I will say this about Catholicism: if you're talking to somebody who says that they are, who speaks a little bit too proudly about how good of a Catholic they are, they're actually terrible yeah. Catholics, right? Every every decent Catholic you know. Every decent Catholic will never say that. Like, we're all bad Catholics. We're all falling yeah. short. And that's okay. We still yeah, believe no, that God loves us, right? But mm -hmm. we would never take pride in, like, how observant we are. We're like, well, some are, and they're sanctimonious, and they're horrible people. But most Catholics, <laughs> yeah. most Catholics in general, are pretty humble about their faith because we know we fall short. Now the thing about evangelicalism, and, and I could get, I could be completely wrong about this, and I don't care, is that it's such a cultural thing. Like there's, there's, there's this. It, it's tied into one's cultural identity, right? And and I can't even understand the concept of, um, for example, being a, like being an evangelical or going to a particular church, and then being involved in the public scandal of sin that you would get kicked out, like. Um, no amount of like unless I'm preaching heresy as a cleric, nothing very almost nothing will get me kicked out of Catholic Church. And uh -huh. yet you will hear across the nation of, you know, people who descend into adultery or who have an affair or or who happen to be gay and, and, and they get kicked out of their church. Like, okay, you get turned turned down in the street, where are you gonna go for spiritual guidance, right? So so that's what I mean when I say that American evangelicalism is a cultural phenomenon in the sense that it involves group identity. It involves being part of an Indian. And so when you say that Trump got the votes of the evangelicals mainly because he thought that he would have Pence do it, I would love to counter that by saying that the mere threat the mere threat of liberalized abortion was enough to turn out the evangelicals out, regardless of who the oh, vice no, president I, was. I would, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And I mean, Hillary Clinton was an this immensely horrible person. Like she, like she turned, she turned out votes for Trump. Yeah, no, I, I get it. I mean, it's the, the the thing that I would say about the way that we've started to segment people in America is that now everyone is trying to find whatever way they can to get a seat at the table. And so when I say, yes, Trump pandered to, to evangelical Christians, and I do believe that he did, at the same time, because of the fear of someone like Hillary Clinton and the Supreme Court justices, she's going to make it liberal, and so she's going to, you know, abortion will always be Ill or illegal in this country. There's a breaking news: abortion will always be illegal in this country, regardless of whether a Republican is in control or not. Right. But, um, but it, it, they, it's they play on fear of of a party. They play on fear within their own community, 
and but they also play for power and the, the the where they get power is that seat at the table and they think that if they get that seat at the table and this can apply to any group honestly yes. if they get that seat at the table then they will have a perception of power whether they actually have it or not because they're invited to sit at the table with the president it's like well lucky here you know i I can. I got the president's ear. Do you? Do you really have the president's ear? Because I'm looking at the president's actions, and I'm not seeing you have any impact on the president. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I will say this. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that about I'm, that. That that comment isn't directly directed at Trump. Oh, that's everybody. You could, you could say that about any president. Bro, so so. Any <laughs> oh man. Hey everyone, this conversation is far from over. There is still so much ground to cover with JBL Rigliano, so please tune in again next week for part two of this fascinating discussion. As always, be sure to follow The Political Nomad on the socials, facebook.com slash thenomadpod, and at thenomadpod on Twitter. Also, sign up for the weekly newsletter, The Nomad News. It's the only place you can get access to the political road trip playlists for every show. And JB has a really fun and very diverse playlist. Sign up today at joshgillespie.com. And subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast platforms. So tune in next week for part two of my conversation with J.B. Albrellano. See you next time. Mm-hmm.